When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to uh, the latest episode of Football Digest um, in a week when a ref nutted a judge. Um, more on that later. Um, on their best behaviour today, of course, Steve Bates, Chief Football Writer for the Sunday People, Simon Mullock, the Chief Football Writer for the Sunday Mirror, and the Daily Mirror's man in Manchester, David McDonnell. Hi, chaps. Um, it's been a non-stop week as usual, uh, and we'll be looking at the Champions League action and Liverpool's much-needed win um, ahead of the a major side derby this Saturday, big game there. We'll be looking at Manchester City's onward march. Uh, can anyone stop them? And maybe more interestingly, the scrap for a top four place. We'll also be looking um, at the bottom three and asking, and I suspect hoping that they're not cut adrift this early on. And back to Europe, we'll be looking at um, Kylian Mbappe and Erling Haaland. I, I read a quote from John Terry the other day saying... Um, that's Jack Grealish and Phil Foden were the best two young players in the world. Um, talk about insular. I think um, those pair might have just um, given JT a nudge. And, of course, there is referee Darren Drysdale um, sticking the head, or, well, putting his head into the head of Alan Judge. Um, but first, Steve, I'm, I'm going to start with Liverpool. Um, I much needed winning the Champions League. Um <clears throat> Do you think they'll soon be back to the best? Do you think that their domestic form is a blip or was this Leipzig performance maybe papering over cracks that are still there? No, look, Andy. I think I think with, as with anything, when when you've got a team like Liverpool who have set such absolutely phenomenal standards the last three seasons, you're going to get a situation where as soon as they come off that level, uh, people are going to say they've gone. You know, they need a, a refresh. Mm. Even Jurgen Klopp's future is called into question as well. But I, I think they, they've never been quite as bad as, as people have made out. It's just the phenomenal standards they've set. They have definitely dipped below that. And then, of course, you've got the uh, the situation with the injuries they've had. And, of course, at the time when they were getting the most criticism, the front three weren't really firing and clicking. They were struggling to score goals. But as we've seen over the last two or three weeks... Um, they're back in the groove now. I mean, yeah. Salah's performance in Leipzig, I thought, was absolutely fantastic. He was yeah, he was just back to his back to his best. Um, but but the whole the, the, that whole front three are clicking again and, and firing. I think obviously it didn't help them that they were dismantled in such a an emphatic way by Manchester City at Anfield. Um, that that really sort of was a, was a, was a kind of a headline moment for them, if you like. And people said, well, you know, uh, where's the Liverpool? that we've come mm. to expect over the last three years, but I think City were so good and are are so good at the moment that, that I, I think it was just merely a question of just uh, magnifying the, the, the problems that they've got, they've, mm. they've got. But I think, you know, we saw in Leipzig that they, they are they are really a truly superb yeah. team still. And when you think that you've got in the back four still, Jordan Henderson, who, <laughs> let's, face, let's face it, is, is a central midfield player. He's not a defender. Yeah. But, you know, Leipzig sorted out Man United over in Germany uh, earlier this season in the Europa League. Um, but they didn't get, they hardly had a sniff against Jordan Henderson in a makeshift Liverpool defence. Sam, I just want to pick up on something that Steve said there about there was even uh, questions about Klopp's future. Now, I don't know about you, but um, and this is probably a lot of my mates where they live and, and who they support, but last Saturday night, I mean, my phone just kept going and going saying, has Klopp quit? Mates, I, friends, family, I, the I, office. I, I, <laughs> but, but, you know, but, I mean, all I kept getting was, has Klopp quit? And I'm replying to you saying, no, where, where have you got this idea from? Next minute, people are texting me saying, oh, the bookies, he's now the favourite. Well, I, I, I wouldn't take much note of that. And, and, and I'm saying to him, no, it's not happening. But all all the time, the phone keeps beeping, has Klopp quit? You know, I guess it's the age we're living in, but where did these rumours come from? Why were these rumours going around? Well, do you know what, Dunny, it was the same for me. I, yeah. I actually got um, a text um, while the game was still going on at the Etihad. Uh, we were all, we were at the Etihad on, on Saturday night for the, the City Spurs game. Mm. Yeah. And um, I got a text off um, off a friend who is in a um, an horse racing syndicate 
that includes, I, I won't mention the guy because it's unfair, but it inclu- includes a former player who is a big Liverpool fan. And it was, he, he had put this in this uh, this WhatsApp group that, that Klopp yeah. had walked out after the Leicester defeat. And I didn't really think anything of it. I just thought it was kind of, you know, it, it was it, these kind of rumours that, that sometimes do the rounds after after a big defeat and when a club's going through a difficult patch. But by the time I got home from the Etihad, like you say, my phone yeah. was, was pinging left, right and centre about rumours. So I thought, look, I'm, I'm going to have to check this out. I actually rang the sports the sports editor and said, "Look, there could be a big story developing here. This this one text that I got a few hours ago is now turned into a flood of text." And I rang Matt McCann, the Liverpool press. Well, I didn't ring him. I texted him. Yeah. Uh, I said, "Matt, look, you know, there's a. I'm, I'm sure you're aware. There's a lot of rumours going round. I'm sure you've had texts from some other people. What's the situation?" And Matt, to, to to his to be fair to him, was back to me within about thirty seconds, saying, "Look, absolute rubbish." Jurgen's going nowhere, you know. Don't worry about it. And I was kind of, I was like you again. I was watching the, the odds tumble yeah, yeah. on yeah. the next manager to to um, to leave a Premier League club. And it, uh, initially, it, Roy Hodgson was favourite, followed by Jose Mourinho. And very quickly, I think Klopp fell from about twenty five to yeah. one to evens. And I think at one point you might not have even been able to get a bet on him. Um, Probably not. So, so clearly the market had been affected by the, this, you know, sort of rash of rumours that that just suddenly started going round after after Liverpool had lost three one. But um, like I say, uh, the press officer was very good in terms of putting my mind at rest that it, it wasn't anything too serious. I mean, I mean that, that's fascinating the way the way that works. I mean, what I would say, I mean, to anyone out there, what I would say is that you know these rumours can just can just gather momentum, whatever. Generally. Though I mean, without blowing our own trumpets, generally newspapers do break these type of stories, uh, you know. And I would say that if you hear it from there, and you hear it from a, a newspaper man, then it, it tends to be right. And, and again, you know, well, maybe I'm blowing our own trumpets, but that's what normally happens, you know. As I say, in this got momentum last week, Dave. What, what, what I would say about Klopp is that is that clearly one of the reasons maybe these rumours come into um, come into circulation is because they've been on a bad run. Because he's been on two or three years of incredibly high, intense, successful football. And the natural thing to do is to put two and two together and actually come up with the idea that you can't keep this going um, for, for, for forever and ever. Now, I, I personally think that he'll see how his contract till 2024 and that he'll then leave, maybe in charge of the national team, depending on the circumstance of the national team at that point. But do you understand why people are putting sort of saying, well, how long can this go on for? How long can Klopp keep this intensity going? How long can his players keep it going for him? Do you understand why people might speculate about his future? Yeah, of course I can. And um, I thought it was interesting this week, um, we spoke to Pep Guardiola about it. Uh, and he said he had some sympathy for Klopp. Of course, they both lost their mothers mm. uh, in, in the past year, Guardiola last year to coronavirus and, and Jurgen Klopp uh, more recently. And of course, he wasn't able to return to Germany um, to attend his mother's funeral because of the, the travel quarantine restrictions because of the coronavirus between the uh, UK and, and Germany. Um, and of course, Jürgen's behaviour has been pretty erratic in interviews. Um, you know, he's been pretty spiky, uh, as you'd expect, I guess, given the run that Liverpool have been on. So I think if you add all these things into the mix, the, the, the personal anguish, the professional issue with Liverpool not performing and and not having you know, hit the standards that they've hit in recent seasons, people are going to put two and two together. People are going to um, speculate on his future. Um, but he was fairly emphatic when he came out and said, "Look, it's a challenge. It's a new challenge. But when I'm up for, and when I'm, when I'm, uh, you know, mm. going to take it head on." But uh, going back to Guardiola, it was interesting because, of course, he had that sabbatical, didn't he? After yeah. Barcelona, he took a year out. I think he lived in New York for for the best part of a year. Um, had to recharge his batteries. He said he was physically, mentally, emotionally drained. Um, I think that was probably a lot to do with the politics of managing Barcelona. You know, uh, I think he's got a lot more freedom. You know, he's not bogged down by that kind of thing at Manchester City. But he needed a year out from the stresses and strains of management um, after Barcelona and then came back, obviously, to Bayern Munich for three years. So I think sometimes possibly we underestimate the pressure that, that managers are under. Um, and I, I, I think really... You know, it is a high-pressured environment they're in. You know, we we see that in these post-match interviews. Sometimes they lose their cool, and that's understandable. Uh, so I can I can see where 
these rumours come from about yeah. clubs, but, but they were kind of quick to shut them down at Liverpool. Yeah, and, and, and I agree. I think it's, you know, when we talk about pressure, you know, it's easy. Sometimes it's easy for people to say, oh, what do you mean pressure? Yeah. Pressure is, is this and pressure is that and pressure is, um, you know, putting food on the table, pressure is working in the NHS. And, and I agree, of course, it's incomparable. All those things are far more pressure than being highly paid to be involved in football. But having said that, there is pressure. And, and remember, you know, if you speak to Klopp and any high-profile manager like that, but Klopp in particular, I, I remember talking to, him, talking to him and saying, like, you know, he's got, no, he can't do the normal things. He cannot. I mean, none of us can go out for a pint now, by the way, but, you know, but actually in normal times, remember them when you could go out and get, but he could, he can't do those things, you know. I mean, he's immediately recognisable and he's away from home. He's away from his family. You know, his family are still, you know, the broad family, that is, are in Germany. You know, his mother's passed away in Germany. I understand that, and, and it's an all-consuming job. Everyone wants a piece of, of Klopp, so I understand why why those pressures will be there. And Steve, there'll be more pressure this, is it Saturday, Liverpool-Everton? I mean, yeah, yeah they, don't, they don't tend to uh, <laughs> slip up at Anfield against Everton. But this one now sort of brings on, if you, you know, never mind the Leipzig results, they've lost, you know, three on the spin in the Premier League. Um, we, and we never saw that coming. They've lost, you know, home games to, to Brighton. Obviously, the City is excusable, but um, big game is for Liverpool and for Everton. It's, it's a massive game, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, g- given the history of the fixture and being in Liverpool's favour, um, and, and to be honest, the way that they have been rediscovering their form the last couple of weeks, uh, I would still expect them to win the Mersey derby. Um mm. Obviously, City had a, a chastening experience at the hands of City last night. Um, didn't play too badly, to be fair, but but they were just absolutely kind of swamped and suffocated by City. Um, so probably that was a difficult game to judge Everton on. Um, but they're going to probably fa- face the same kind of clock game plan on 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 Saturday at Anfield, where you know I'm sure he'll be absolutely um, intent on going for it from the from the first whistle. Uh, I, I can only see personally a Liverpool win on 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 uh, on Saturday, but uh, you know I think it's it's interesting that you know people have written them off and people are now even speculating whether they'll make the top four, which which which, which is just uh, I think I think it's quite ludicrous really because if ever if ever a club's able to put a, a run together, then it, it would be Liverpool. Uh, and I, I fully expect them to be challenging for a top four place come the end of the mm. season because we've got what we've got left, about 16, 17 games left. So I'm absolutely certain they'll do that. But there, there is certainly, there is pressure there, you know, uh, especially on the back of that um, uh, that poor run in the Premier League. But, um, mm. uh, you know, I, I think, I think, Things have been magnified with Liverpool, as I said before, because of because of the outstanding levels that they've, they've, they've hit. Uh, and it, it, let's be fair, they are having difficulties. But I've seen sort of certain signs within within the way certain players have emerged. I mean, Curtis Jones, for instance, mm. lo- looks better and better and better every time I see him. You know what what a good young player he is. Uh, and and I, I, I do think I do think you know it's it's a bit of hysteria to suggest that Liverpool aren't going to make top four or mm. might not even make Europa League, which is what some people were speculating. <laughs> might be relegated. Later on. <laughs> hey, no, but I tell you what, Steve. I mean, you, you say hysteria, and, and Simon, is it is, is it really is it really that far fetched they won't finish top four? Let's we'll come on to City, and I want to come back to Everton as well in a minute, but. But, you know, Steve brought up the top four. Well, hang on a minute. You know, Thomas Tuchel, um, um, just by the way, Frank Lampard's sacking was um, was written by a newspaper reporter, if I remember right. I think it was Matt Law from The Telegraph, just to say yeah. which rumours to believe. But um, uh, Thomas Tuchel um, seems to have hit the ground running at Chelsea. Leicester flying for the most part. Manchester United um, um, doing well. So, is, is it really that hysterical to suggest that that, that United uh, that Liverpool might not well face a battle to finish top four, Sam? I thought the forget forget the result at Leicester. If you look at that first seventy minutes, I thought that was Liverpool yeah. probably pretty close to their best. Mm. I think the one worrying thing that we've never seen before with Liverpool under Jurgen Klopp is the way they crumbled against City after that second goal. And the way they crumbled yeah. after Leicester equalised, which was very un-Liverpool-like, and and I think that would be a, a a big worry more than more than their actual form. And even if you look at the Leipzig game, the two goals came from glaring mistakes, yeah. defensive mistakes. It wasn't as if Liverpool dominated, no question, but it wasn't as if they were sort of creating chance after chance. Um, 
and they got the breaks. And, and like Steve said earlier, Salah was lethal, and um, you know Mane produced practically a, a, an identical finish to, to the early the, to the first goal. So I think that was a big result for Liverpool in midweek. I think that really kind of eases the pressure. And after their kind of recent huge dipping form, particularly at Anfield, after going what sixty-eight games unbeaten there, what better way for them to to get back on track than, than a game against their their local rivals? I think I was actually at Goodison at, at, at Anfield the last time Everton won there. I think Kevin Campbell scored. Yeah. Um, I don't think I think it was what ninety-nine, ninety-eight. Um, an awfully long time ago. So Everton will go there thinking that they're due a performance and result against Liverpool at Anfield. So I think it could be could be quite an intriguing game. For, for me, if I was Carlo Ancelotti, I'd try and stay in, game, in the game as or if I was Everton, try and stay in the game as long as possible and hope that those kind of nerves that Liverpool have shown at home in recent weeks start to fray again. Yeah, I mean, Dave. It, um, after after last night's game, I mean, Ancelotti sort of points to the fact that they've got a decent record on the road this year. Um, how much that matters now with no crowds, I'm not sure. But they've got a dreadful home record recently, and you know that defeat last night. Okay, that one was expected, but you know you're being beaten by Fulham, you're being beaten by Newcastle. Is Ancelotti getting a little bit of a free pass at the moment? Yeah, possibly because of his reputation, uh, and I think possibly. Because of the way that everything started the season, it started so well. Um, you know, they've mm. made some excellent signings. You know, they sort out the midfield. Uh, Calvert Lewin's been been drawing for fun. Um, Rodriguez, James Rodriguez had a great start. He's kind of tailed off a little bit. They've had injuries, of course, um, which is really, um, you know, not them a little bit, I think. So there, there is mitigation on that front. Uh, but yeah, possibly getting a free pass um, to, to some extent. But I think that they're probably where they deserve to be at the moment in the league. You know, I think the best they could probably hope for is uh, a <laughs> place. I think up for, you know, we've talked about when they were flying high at the start of the season, mm. but I think in reality, the league sorts itself out as it has done in, in recent weeks with obviously Liverpool being the exception, but you know, teams are where you'd expect them to be really. Um, mm. But I think Simon said, he's, he's certainly due a, a, a performance there, uh, Everton's due a performance there at Anfield. Um, and I think as, as you say, you know, it might suit them. It, it may well suit them. And I, and I feel that they will feel that Liverpool's sort of vulnerability at Anfield in recent weeks is something they can potentially uh, exploit. I think Everton done it. I think Everton yeah. fans, you know, will be absolutely desperate to get Dominic Calvert-Lewin back in that team on Saturday. He's missed the, the, the games against Fulham and City. They've lost both of them. Not saying I'm not saying that's a coincidence or whatever, but he 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 showed against Manchester United recently. Um, I think uh, uh, a couple of us were there for that. I think we're all probably there for that game against Everton yeah. when 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 uh, they came back Everton late on and scored. But Calvert-Lewin is exactly the type of player that will give Liverpool's defence. Um, you know, nightmares really uh, if they can get the proper service to him at Anfield on Saturday and he does make it and he is fit again um, you know, he, he will be exactly the type of player that Liverpool will just not want to face and as I say, if, if they can get some proper service into him if he does play then I'm absolutely certain that, uh, that they will definitely uh, w- without a doubt cause Liverpool problems in that makeshift that four Yeah, but, but you know what, see that, that, that actually sort of... Um... Reminds me of something in a way. I, I totally agree with you about a, a, a reliance on Calvert Lewin, and, and it has to be an over reliance on Calvert Lewin. You know, I mean, hang on a minute. This was a guy coming into the season who wasn't the player that he is now. I mean, let's, let, let, let's face it. You know, it, it, it took probably only since the first lockdown that Calvert Lewin has blossomed. And you're relying on on, on who is still a from age, I wouldn't say raw, but you, you know, he's still learning his craft. And Marcel Brands, I think, the director of football, is about to sign a new contract or is going to commit his future and has had a lot of um, sort of praise for what he's done there. But to me, Everton have left themselves, you know, over-reliant on Calvert-Lewin. And one of the ironies, I think, that everyone will be looking at and thinking, who's that playing for PSG? What happened to Moyes Keane at Everton? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I was, on, I was thinking the same when I was watching it. Looked, he bare, it looked like he barely kicked the ball when he put the blue of Everton on. Who's now pulling up trees next to Kylian Mbappe at PSG? I don't know how many goals he scored this season, but I think it's double figures. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, so so I mean, what, what happened there? What went wrong there? And well, if Ancelotti can't get the best out of him, then yeah, I don't know. I just find it one of those odd situations. Maybe he's just more suited to Paris than Liverpool. 
Donny, yeah, Donny, he's playing in a forward line that includes yeah. Mbappe and Neymar. True. So I think that might have True. something to do with it. <laughs> yes. Rather than, uh, you know, yeah. uh, Richarlison and, and Calvert-Lewin. But yeah. Uh, yeah, listen, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah, he, he definitely, Everton fan, Evertonians will be looking at that thinking, why didn't we get that out of him? But clearly he's thriving in that kind of environment there. Uh, and it, there's no doubt about it. You know, his goal record is very good since he's yes. been there. So, yeah. um, uh, but, you know, I think, I think Evertonians... You know, when I watch Richarlison, you you always seem to want more from him. You know, there's yeah. a there's there's a deadly deadly player in there, but he, he doesn't always kind of produce it, and it, it's a it's a bit of a frustration, I think, not only for Evertonians, but I would also imagine for Ancelotti, uh, because he's there's definitely Calvert Lewin and Richarlison should be an absolutely formidable partnership, yeah. uh, but but they don't seem to have quite clicked properly, and I think there's this kind of um, there's this kind of uncertainty about where Richarlison's best position is. Is it coming off the left? Is it down the middle as a number nine? Um, he can't really play there because Calvert Lewin that's mm. that's his position, and he does it very well. He scored 18 goals already this season in that position, so you're not going to shift him. Um, but yeah, listen, it's a conundrum for Ancelotti. Talk of conundrum, Simon Pickford or Olsen. Pickford for me still I think he's a better keeper I, I was at um, the uh, Man United Everton game a couple of weeks ago and I don't think uh, Olsen covered, him, covered himself in too much glory that night um, he, he, yeah I, I just think I know Pickford's going through a difficult time he's just come back from injury against City thought he should have saved the third goal last night because he got a strong hand to it and, and couldn't keep it out but I still think Pickford um, from what I've seen and I can only go off what, what I've yeah. seen I think Pickford just is he, you know, is the, is the man with the shirt at the moment? Let, let, let's let, let's uh, actually now we digress on keepers. Let's let's, let's stay down that path. Dave, <laughs> um, uh, um, Henderson or De Gea? Now that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Well, I mean, I've, 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 you, Paul. Well, I've, I've advocated, I've advocated Henderson. I think mm. that this, this is not just a blip from David De Gea. This is a, a malaise, you know, that, that started last season and, and potentially the season before that. Capable of brilliant you know, moments, you know, shot-stopping moments, um, you know, great saves that almost makes people forget the errors and, and reminds them of how good the air is. But you know, we've said this for years, and people have said this for years. He doesn't command his area. He's not brave. I mean, Simon just mentioned the the uh, the three-all draw between United and Everton at, at Old Trafford um, a week or so ago. We were both at. I mean, De Gea was at four for two two of the goals there. You know, certainly um, the first one and, and the third one. Um, so, yeah, I think there is a decision there for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to make. Mm. Um, I expect Dean Henderson to play tonight in the Europa League, uh, as he has done, and he's obviously played in the FA Cup. But, um, you know, he's come back from a very successful loan spell at Sheffield United, not to sit on the bench. I think he's been very bullish about that. I think you, some of you guys did an interview with him on England duty yes. um, at the start of the season, where he said, precisely that, I've come back to be number one. I've not come back to, to challenge the I've come back to get that jersey myself. Um and I think United probably, you know, hoped that that you know having Henderson back would kind of help De Gea raise his game because let's be honest, he's been unchallenged as, yeah. as Man United's number one for the best part of the decade. I think you have to go back to Anders Lindegaard, that, that, you know, when uh, when De Gea signed for for the last time, you know, he lost his place. Okay, he's, he's been in and out the side at the start, but he's been largely undisputed number one for, for a decade. So yeah. I think I think he's now become a liability rather than an asset. And I think you know as much as Oligana Solskjaer says yeah, every player has to earn his place and, and, and sort of champion this so-called competition in his squad. That doesn't seem to apply to David De Gea. And I, I, I do feel that that is kind of undermining Solskjaer's rhetoric and it's undermining yeah. this whole you know, belief or, or the, the suggestion that, that players have to earn their place on merit because at the moment De Gea doesn't deserve his place on merit uh, and Henderson does. So I think you know, if, if you're going to stick by that principle of, of, of every player you know, has to earn their place, right. then Henderson deserves the shout. Yeah, I, I agree. With, I agree with David. Yeah. You know, I think um, I don't think there is a decision to be made as far as De Gea and Henderson is concerned because Ollie's been steadfast in his his um, insistence that if you're the man with the shirt and you're the man in form, then you get the nod. Um, now you know they brought Henderson back. Uh, they talked him up that he was the future of the club. Um, they put him on a new contract that's reportedly worth hundred thousand pounds a week. That is a, a a big statement to make if you're not then going to give him a chance when your number one is making as many mistakes as David De Gea is making. I don't think there's there's a decision to be made. I think they've got to give Henderson the chance that they promised him when he when he came back to the club in the summer. 
Yeah, I, I think you're right, Sam. I think, you know, when um, David re- referenced that interview that we did with him when he was on England duty, and he probably said a little bit too much. You know, and we were slightly surprised that he, that he committed himself for the new contract to Manchester United, knowing, as, as we know, that David Agea, we thought, was pretty irreplaceable. But he seemed to come across in that interview almost as though, I mean, he didn't say as much, but the impression I came away with was that he'd been given some guarantees that he would, you know, there's no point in him coming back and not being number one. He wants to be with England at the Euros. You know, and the Euros are in, you know, are, are in June. And at the moment, okay, that's a whole new discussion at the moment, the England goalkeeping situation, because there's no one really putting themselves forward to challenge Pickford. However, you know, Henderson seems to be under the impression that, 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 that he would get more of a chance. And, and, and I'm intrigued. Imagine the whole goalkeeping thing at the moment. I could go on either or. I could say, Steve, um, Mendy or Kepa at Chelsea, because now Tuchel brought Kepa back in for a Premier League game. What's this thing with rotating keepers? Yeah, he did. He did. I, I think, <laughs> listen, um, Kepa was on his way out under Frank, wasn't he? There's no doubt yeah. about that. I think if there'd have been a window nearby uh, when, when Frank just was... just him out uh, of it. <laughs> he, he, he would have chucked him out of it, yeah, d- d- despite, yeah. you know, uh, paying, what, 70 million for him or something? Some, yeah. But, but yeah, listen, it, it just does show you that um, Hugo, Hugo Lloris at, um, well, exactly, at, at Tottenham, he's another keeper that's uh, in the spotlight at the minute. But uh, Hugo Lloris or Joe Hart? Yeah, well, exactly. Well, Joe Hart of five years ago, maybe, but uh, well, Alex is the biggest one at the moment. He's going through a crisis, you know. Well, exactly. And sorry, Steve, but Simon, you mentioned that before about Liverpool collapsing after, um, you know, late on against City and against Leicester. But let's face it, you know, I mean, they collapsed, but the goalkeeper collapsed. You know, the goalkeeper. You know what? The goalkeeper collapsed. I mean, I mean, I I had this. I'm watching that game on on TV, um, Leicester Liverpool. And I'm hearing the discussion amongst commentators and summarizers saying, oh, well, there's a lack of communication there, understandable lack of a lack of communication between the new centre half and the goalkeeper. I'm like, no, it's just the goalkeeper's fault. Well, it's never been more of the goalkeeper's fault than that. Even in the Leipzig game, one of Alisson's great strengths is when the ball's at his feet. He's great at playing the ball out from the back. He, I mean, how many clearances he sliced out of touch in the Leipzig yeah. game? So you could tell he was still he's still been affected yeah. by what's been happening over the last few weeks. I think that clean sheet um, in in um, in the first leg will have done him, uh, you know, yeah. will have done his confidence a great deal of good. It was just what he needed after what he's experienced in the last few yeah. weeks because let's let's be fair, he's been absolutely quality since he's been he brilliant. came over. Yeah. I mean, Steve, Steve you, you, sorry mate, uh, to interrupt you, but you brought up Hugo Lloris. It didn't help that, in contrast to the other end to Hugo Lloris last Saturday, you have Edison who, who not content with like, you know, making um, some, well, certainly one good save from Gareth Bale, you know, then pings an 80-yard assist for, for Gundogan. And it just seems to me, when we're discussing Manchester City, one of the things that just that, that, that strikes me just observing is that this year, Edison seems to be at his best. And in keeping with the defence, I don't know whether it's my imagination, but he seems to maybe not taking as many risks. He's doing the basics right, which City defensively are doing right. You know, they have a unit now, whether or not slightly interchangeable as it was last night with Laporte coming in for Stones and Walker and Cancelo as fullbacks. Zinchenko might come in. But they look as though they've got a pretty organised unit. And I think Edison's an important part of that. Do you sense that he has maybe just scaled back a little bit on the extravagance? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't think he's ever been a goalkeeper where you've got your heart in your mouth with him uh, because mm. his distribution is so good. Uh, I, I don't think there's probably a better keeper in the Premier League uh, with the ball at his feet. I think he is the number one, even ahead of Alisson for me. Edison's always, always been very, very good. Listen, right. every goalkeeper done it is going to make a mistake. They're all going yeah. to do it. Doesn't matter who you are. The best, the best do it. They always do it. But you're at particular risk when you try to play out of goal. I mean, there's. <laughs> There's no goalkeeper that that is an accident waiting to happen more than the Leeds goalkeeper, um, <laughs> uh, the, the, the young kid who who uh, sort of tries to play out, and even if he concedes one, the next moment he'll be trying to play out. Yeah. Now I think when when you've got managers like Bielsa and Guardiola and Klopp who give you the responsibility and the license and the freedom to play that way, then then that's absolutely fine because you know those good goalkeepers have been told to play that way and. You know, Pep's not going to change the way he plays, but mm. I do agree with you. The defence at City has, has, yeah. has had a mass, massive impact on Edison. I mean, I think you know, by, by of the by of the season must be 
Ruben Diaz. I mean, he's just brought stability, assurance, calmness, everything you like to that Manchester City defence. And of course, we've seen the emergence of John Stones again, which is which yeah. has been great, great for Guardiola and himself and City fans as well. So there is a there is an absolute um, uh, now complete calmness and stability about that defence. And you look at Liverpool. I think seventeen, eighteen defensive partnerships in front of Allison. That can't help, can it? It can't yeah. do. And and I think there's a similar case at Manchester United where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer does chop and change. Maguire's always the constant, but he chops and changes between Lindelof, Bailly, Twanzebe. Um, you, you know, I think I think you know the best teams um, are always uh, have a foundation of a centre back pairing. You go back to Ferdinand and Vidic back in the day. You know, if you've got those two central defenders in front of you who stay there week in week out you're not going to have many problems. But once you start chopping and changing, as managers do, and I understand the reasons they're doing it in the particular uh, football landscape and the, the global landscape we're in at the moment, I can understand that. But just going back to City, I, I think, you know, it's no surprise that City's uh, surge of form and resurgence, and obviously I, I think they're going to go away and run away with the title now, maybe by 20 points, I don't know, but certainly certainly they're, they're with a big, big advantage. I think you can't, you can't sort of, uh, you can't break the link between that and the, the defence. Yeah. Uh, Dave, 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 sorry, sorry, Dave. Yeah, no, I was going to say, uh, I to what Steve said on Edison, after the 3-0 um, uh, win over Tottenham last weekend, uh, City's win, I asked Guardiola, I said, look, you've worked with some incredible goalkeepers, um, you know, Victor Valdez at Barcelona, Manuel Neuer at Bayern Munich. How does Edison compare to them? Hoping he'd say he's, he's, he's the best. Now, he was very, very diplomatic. But what he did say, and this endorses what, what Steve was, and what just said, was that he's the best of those three, the best he's ever worked with with the ball at his feet. You know, his distribution is, is second to none. And we, we saw that, you know, we've seen that with the assists yeah. last weekend and the calmness that he brings to the... Uh, to the defence. So I just thought it was interesting Guardiola actually saying, yeah, by far and away, he has the best feet of any keeper he's worked with. Yeah. You described them, Simon, that he is going through Edison just just a whole calm period in his career. Yeah. Um, although I'm I'm absolutely certain that he wants to get on the penalty. City have had their yeah, yeah. problems with, with <laughs> pens and I'm absolutely sure because his big hero was a Sao Paulo keeper called uh, Rogerio Cini who I think right. scored about 150 goals in his career, he used to come out and take penalties and free kicks. And that's why he's so good with his feet is because when he was growing up in Brazil, that was the goalkeeper that he most mm. wanted to be like. So he, he he practiced with the ball at his feet as much as he did keeping it out of the goal. But yeah, he, he, he does look calm. And I think Steve's absolutely right about what he said earlier. That is because he's got a, a defence in front of him that just looks absolutely rock solid at the moment. Mm. Um, you know, Diaz has been absolutely fantastic. John Stones is back to his best. Uh, you know, people are talking about maybe Gundogan being player of the year um, at the moment or Diaz. I, I think Cancelo has been absolutely mm. fantastic. I mean, w- what a footballer he's he's become this season. You know, a, a right back or a left back that pushes into central midfield and just doesn't look out of place there. And I think the, the the thing that City have got now, which what is what Guardiola has wanted throughout his time at the Etihad, is he mentioned it last week. There's, there's no Ronaldo, there's no Messi yet. Um, you know, there's no Mbappe. They've just got a you know a, a pure team where everybody just fits into into that plan. You know, we, we just seen the rotation last night where Laporte came in, uh, where um, Kyle Walker came back in. Um, you know, it, it, on on Saturday it could be it could be Mendy coming back in, it could be Zinchenko coming in, Gundogan, and the mm. interchangeability there is just absolutely incredible. Given that there was so little preparation time in the summer, and you know, Guardiola doesn't get that time on the training field that that he really kind of is precious to him to, to set the team up. So um, yeah, I think City City are in a, a really good place at the moment. They're in a great place. I think what struck me as well last night, just by looking at the personnel um, and looking who came on, looking who was on the bench, and if you think really, top of my head, is probably only Gundogan at the moment, and that isn't serious, clearly. I mean, they have got such a, a good bill of health. I mean, that does help, you know, coming into the middle of February, towards the end of February, when the Champions League is starting again, you know, and the cup competitions they are still in then that's going to be important. You looked at that squad yesterday and you thought, well, just, he could put two teams out there that could beat Everton last night. You know, and Everton are a decent side. 
I think the only I think the only player that's out at the moment, Andy, is is Nathan Aki. I mean, Gundogan's yeah. obviously got the, the groin problem, but you know, a player yeah. that he spent yeah. forty million pounds on. Sure, yes, yeah. Who yeah. people expected to come in and, and play a role because John Stones looked to be, you know, mm. got a surplus to requirements or a squad player at best. And um, you know, they, they've they've even got Aki to come back in. It's a, it's an incredible. It's just, yeah. the depth that, that Guardiola's got. Who would have thought that, that City would ever get to a point where they don't miss Sergio Aguero? Well, yeah, or exactly. Or, or, or De Bruyne. Or, 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 or De Bruyne. Exactly. Well, that's just because, I mean, sheer numbers, sheer quality of numbers. Simon says, Simon say that about them not having, like Pep said, a Ronaldo or an Mbappe or, you know, um, someone like that. But they have got, you know, high quality players. Many, many, many of them, haven't they? So that and that helps at this time of year. So now Sam has brought it up. He did say, I heard him say, no Messi yet. So one, will they get him? And two, after everything Sam has just said, why do they need him? Anyone on that one? Well, I spoke to I spoke to Paolo Zabaleta last week about Messi. And he's he's uh, Zabaleta is now living back in Barcelona. He's big friends with Messi and has been since their youth team days in Argentina. And he said, "Look, honestly, I don't know what Messi is going to do." He's and he even mentioned that he could stay at Barcelona uh, and be a, you know a, a one club one club man. But he said, "My advice to him would be that if he wanted a new ch- challenge, it had to be the Premier League because um, there is still." You know, so you're running away the, the league at the moment. Yeah. There is still that kind of challenge of of what is still the toughest league in the world. Um, so does he take that option or does he go to Paris Saint-Germain or does he stay with Barcelona? That's a decision that I would imagine became a lot easier for him to make after they were thumped by, uh, by PSG in midweek because Barcelona look a million miles away from the team they were. How long is it going to take uh, Ronald Koeman or the next man to, to rebuild that 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 squad, given the the apparent lack of funds at the club at the moment. I mean, I, I don't know where I just don't know where they would find the the money though to to you know particularly in a pandemic to to pay for. I know if anybody can, it'd be City. But you know, finding the money to finance Messi's not just not just his wages, but signing on fees, his entourage, everything. It would be an absolutely huge, huge financial commitment for a player who's 34 and who some people might say, you know, maybe, well, his, his best days are clearly behind him, that's for sure. They're not in front of him. Um, but uh, I suppose it, it would make perfect sense for City if they could, if he could get him over the one hurdle that they need to get over, which is which is Champions League. I mean, they may well win the Champions League this season, City, so they wouldn't need him at all then, would they? Well, exactly. I, I, and also, I, I think... Dave, the, the, you know, we talk about it's not quite the old chestnut of could he do it on a cold, windy night in Stoke? I mean, he won't have to because I don't think Stoke are coming up, are they? So, um, but the yeah, maybe <laughs> rested for that. Um, but it could, you know, but he, he is, as Steve mentioned, he turns 34 in um, June. Um, we know the way City play. I mean, you only have to watch the game last night and the intensity. Um, are they play with and without the ball? I'm not saying he's, you know, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be fantastic to have me. But really, can you see it happening? And can you see? I mean, what, what would be the exact point? I know that sounds like a ridiculous question, like where did it all go wrong type question. But what would be the exact point of having Messi in Manchester City when there's well, when they're blazing a trail again this season? Yeah, but you always want to add quality to the squad. Yeah. Of course, Aguero is not going to go on forever. Uh, if you have a chance to sign arguably the best player of all time, mm. you're going to take it. You're going to take it. And as Steve said, and as Simon said, you know, if there's one club that can afford to do it, it's Manchester City or, or, or PSG, of course. Um, yeah, of course they would want to sign him. You might only get two or three seasons out of him, but I mean, what two or three seasons yeah. would they be? You, know, you see still, like Ronaldo, I think it was Messi 35 now, 34, 35. Ronaldo's just turned 36. Well, he's 33, Messi. I think he turns 34 in June. Yeah. Well, so, you know, he's a couple of years younger than, than Ronaldo, who's in, you know, still in, in incredible physical condition. Um, you know, neither of them have suffered great injuries throughout their career. So you, you'd expect that Messi's got maybe three, two or three, certainly two years uh, at his peak, really, um, you know, to, 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 to still offer uh, Manchester City. And of course, commercially, it would make sense. Well, not just from point of view, commercially, the deal would pay for itself, you know. So I think it's a no brainer for Manchester City. And of course, the city hierarchy, is, as the guys will know as well, have made no secret of the fact that they have an allegiance, an alliance with, with Messi from 
uh, his Barcelona days, um, yeah. um, uh, City. You know, they've made it known privately that if Messi ever left Barcelona, Manchester City is the club that he would come to. Now, of course, you know, PSG obviously entered the fray, and there's the opportunity of him, you know, playing up front alongside Neymar again, uh, being reunited with him, and playing alongside Kylian Mbappe. What a front front three that would be! So he has options, obviously, um, but I think City would certainly try and pull out all the stocks to sign Messi, yeah. even though, as you say, they are running away with the title. Um, and then may win the Champions League this season. Could you, could you imagine? Could you imagine what two year two years next to Phil Foden would do, uh, next to Messi would do? For- Absolutely. In terms of his development, uh, it would be incredible. So, uh, yeah, I think for me, it's a no brainer for City. If they can get in, they will do everything they can to do so. Can I just say something as well? It's not just Manchester City we're talking about here. You're talking about the City Football Group. Yeah, Messi could is- quite easily play two, three years in the Premier League, and then go. Gone play in New York for another, another two or three years. What would that do to the MLS, for example? Um, so City have got that in their in their locker as well. It, it wouldn't just be maybe a, a two or three year deal. It could be a six year deal. Yeah. Um, so you spread, you know, you spread the cost of that over six years, and suddenly it doesn't become it's not as prohibitive as as maybe it is if you, you're talking about you know in, in yeah. the final two years of his career. It's, Sam, you, you took the words out of my mouth there. I was going to mention, I think I read somewhere, might have been this morning, about um, more City football group links, I think, with a club in Bolivia and another French club, um, I think. Um, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't remember. Maybe anyway, but a couple of clubs that they form more links with, and clearly the City football group is the big thing. And I think you're right. I think, you know, never mind what... what Messi would take, you know, that group to to a, to a whole new level in, in, in global recognition, which... I'm sure is um, is what they're after, but lads, I think you know. I think we would agree that, that there's probably not much point in discussing whether or not City are going to win the title because I think we'd all agree that they that they are going to win the title this year. Other end of the table, um, there was another um, game yesterday. Burnley Fulham. I finished one each. A um, couple of quick goals inside, um, quick succession. Do we see Fulham as the only one of those bottom three, Steve, who might make a run? at um, basically pulling another couple of teams, maybe Newcastle, maybe Palace, into the mix? Well, they're closer to them, aren't they? I mean, mm. you know, you, you, you'd say Sheffield United, West Brom. While, while not adrift, they're certainly uh, one or two more defeats for them and they're definitely going to be adrift. There's no doubt about that. Fulham seemed to be the team that could maybe claw back. What, what we've got, 14 games left. Yeah. Um, so what's that? Uh, 42 points to play for. Uh, Fulham are, what, six points at the moment off Newcastle. 7-8 off Brighton Burnley so it's yeah. not a huge gap to pull back and there is always a team that that kind of goes into free fall I think at the moment you'd be worried about Crystal Palace the way they're kind of uh, plummeting a bit under Roy Hodgson um, yes. they, they seem to be in a, in, a, in, a, in a real kind of downward spiral but I think Fulham have shown absolute brilliant um, uh, character bravery to keep playing uh, the football they're playing because they're playing some really attractive football Uh Scott Parker's doing a superb job there, I think. And uh, I think if there's one team that probably deserves to get out of it in the, the bottom three because of the style of play yeah. and because of, of, of what they bring, then it, it would be, for me, Fulham. But, you know, you, you, the, the teams above them are, are catchable, definitely. Um, but as I say, you're always going to get a team that's going to have a bad last four, five, six games of the season. And as long as Fulham can stay in, in touch and in contact with those sort of four, yeah. five, six teams above them, I think they've got a real fighting chance. I think I think that's a good point in the full. It was so important for them to get that win at Goodison and indeed to get the points um, at Turf Moor because you know I was sort of I covered the game. I remember doing the game down at um, Craven Cottage when they were beaten by Chelsea um, by a goal to nil, and they played very well. You know, and, and they were they were probably the better team in that in that game until the fullback, uh, well, the wing back um, Robinson was sent off. You know, for a ridiculous challenge and. And then even then with 10 men, they, they played well. But I, I got the impression then that, you know, Scott Parker was fed up doing the same interview. Uh, it was a replica after every single game. We played well, we didn't win. We played well, we didn't win. We created stuff we didn't convert. And I think it was important they got that win at Goodison Park. And they seem the side, as you say, that might be able to actually put some wins together. I, I don't see Chef you and West Brom actually putting many victories together, you know. So that, that's the issue. Fulham can score goals. There are goals in Fulham, you know, and I think, um, and you're right when there's teams above maybe vulnerable. Now, you mentioned Palace, 
And um, what do any of these teams do, Dave? If they do keep sliding, say the likes of Palace. Now, I won't go down the Newcastle line because I think we've been down the line. Will Bruce, you know, um, what will happen to him? But more interestingly, I think there's sort of a growing sort of um, discussion about whether or not Palace would, in the event of a, a, you know, a succession of defeats, you know, make a change of manager. Would they, would they think about um, changing their manager sort of at this stage of the season? Well, certainly they are, they are vulnerable, aren't they? Mm. And I was at the, I was at the Burnley Fulham game last night and, and the way, as, as Steve said, the way Fulham have played in recent weeks, you know, they've, they've drawn too many games. I think they've drawn 10 uh, this season. So, you know, they haven't been able to convert those into wins. But they, I think they played Sheffield United, obviously, at the weekend. Yeah. And then I think they Palace after that, if I'm right. So, you know, they can certainly drag Palace into it. Now, listen, you know, Roy's done a great job at, at Palace, but, you know, they, they have some bad from this Dwarf Zaha uh, and, and the, the creativity, the enterprise that he brings. And, uh, you know, he, without him, they look pretty, you know, bereft and, and, and one-dimensional, of course. Any team that loses 3-0 at home to Burnley, you've got to ask serious yeah. questions about Burnley have scored, I think, you know, I think they scored five goals on the road before, all, all season before that. So I, th- I think, yeah, there, there, there is a, a question there if, if Palace do slide. I, mean, I, I can't see them making a change at this late stage. We've seen no. it obviously at Watford last season, I think. We've seen it, uh, uh, you know, nothing surprised you in football. Um, I think it would be a mistake for Palace to get rid of Roy Hodgson because he has done a, a decent job there, you know, stabilised them. Yeah, they're having a difficult period at the moment, but I think if they can get Zaha back fit, um, that will give them an extra dimension. Um, mm. They've got a bit of a cushion at the moment, but they can't afford to slip any closer uh, to, to the um, to the bottom three. And certainly, you know, the form Fulham are in, uh, and you know, with Newcastle I think playing Manchester United on Sunday, if Fulham can get a result in the next couple of games, a win and a draw possibly, then they and, and Palace don't, um, you know, get a win or so then, you know, Newcastle and Palace are drawn right back into it. So I think yeah. it's going to be quite an interesting one to watch. Certainly more interesting than the, the top end of the table, where City, as we say, are, <laughs> are romping away with it. Simon, bottom three, as they stand, going down? Um, no, I think no. Fulham, I think Fulham no. can get out of it. Um, they've brought Josh, Josh Madger in, who's, who's looks quite lively, scored a couple of goals at Everton. Um, I think they look like a team who's really well organised, um, but also carry a threat at the other end. And I look at somebody like Newcastle, for example. Um, Callum Wilson's injured. If Callum Wilson's not scoring for Newcastle, not many other players do. I mean, Andy Carroll's not going to score the goals that keep Newcastle out of the bottom three. And you look at Palace, and it's interesting with Roy Hodgson. Roy's big quality was always um, defensive organisation. And I watched them the game against Burnley, and they were they were absolutely all over the place, which is very unlike a Roy Hodgson team. Um, they've always relied on keeping things tight at one end and, and looking for a bit of Wilfried Zaha magic at the other. Mm. With Zaha missing, they just don't yeah. look like a team that can score goals. I mean, I don't know how long he's he's going to be out for, whether it's a, a long term thing, but they need him back very quickly. And I think Newcastle for me, which is a shame because. Um, I love going up to St James's Park, and we all know what what great fans and what what a great club they are. But they just look like a team that's in free fall at the moment to me. And I think Fulham have got the uh, the, the 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 capability of of, of clawing claw, clawing them back yeah. in. And uh, I, I think Newcastle might be the one that goes. I agree. I, th- I think Scott Parker has, has got um, a lot about him. Actually, I think you know they're a bit more organised now. I think Anderson. It's made a big difference defensively. You know they they look reasonably solid. So so hopefully anyway it would be good. I think I think what I really do hope that one of those bottom three and I suspect it will be full and make a run because I think what we don't want is is for the bottom three to be cut adrift with say ten games to go because then you would get I think you know a, a sort of a bunch of teams above them who aren't going down but who who haven't got Europe to fight for who will basically without the crowds and in this peculiar environments will just go through the motions. I think you get a lot of games. I'm already seeing the odd game where I'm looking at teams and thinking, well, you know what? There's no jeopardy involved here. You're not really, you're not going to get any flack from the crowd because there isn't one there. You're not going down and you're not challenging for anything significant. So, so you're going through the motions and I just hope then that that will change if, if, if Fulham can go up. Steve, I, I did mean to, to mention while we were on the European and the Messi chat, but we sort of got a bit involved with Messi. 
Talking of successes to Messi, long-term, as in Ballon d'Or winners, global superstars, and Messi was on the field um, to have a, a view of one of them. An incredible week, I mentioned at the start, for Mbappe and for Haaland. I mean, these these are just two examples of, of, of two sensational players in Europe right at this moment. Mbappe, incredible hat-trick. Yeah, I mean, we've known about Mbappe for a long yeah. time, haven't we? But I think it was definitely a coming-of-age performance, as a lot of people yeah. uh, kind of tagged that the other the other night. It it, it, it was, I have to say, um, I think there's a lot of a lot of strikers, maybe at Premier League clubs, that would have taken advantage of that Barcelona defence. Yes, it, it was it was truly truly shocking. But the, the way Mbappe dismantled them was fantastic and uh, no real surprise I mean he's got he's got pace to burn hasn't he but what 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 um what I noticed about him and um what I hadn't seen before in his game he he's he's his finishing ability and the way he takes his time and he's clinical in his finishing uh, was for me because I've not studied him a lot lately I was just like going on what I'd seen in the past from him and I felt that sometimes he got into good positions but didn't really convert I thought his his ruthlessness was off the scale the other night against Barcelona. Yes. He he definitely made sure that he converted those chances. They weren't they weren't easy chances either. They were difficult chances, yeah. and, and he converted them. Uh, as for Haaland, well, you know we, we we know what he can do. I mean, he's <coughs> his his ability is is again on, on a on a super high level, the same as Mbappe. Different type of player, of course, but uh, still got all the attributes and knows where the goal is. And uh, you know, when you when you think about what John Terry said about Grealish yeah. and being the best two, yeah, this, you've you've got to put those two above them at this minute in time because yeah. uh, they they are players that. Um, would absolutely grace any league in the world, and it would be fantastic if one day we could see either of them in the in the Premier League. Yeah, I think he was GT um, was trumpeting his own, which is which is fine. I'm sure he, you know he, he, he doesn't get to see a lot of these type of players. David, talking about Haaland there, Steve is um, yes, we have known about him. Why isn't Haaland a Manchester United player? Well, they're in for him, certainly. In for why, him. Why, why didn't they get him initially? Why didn't they get him when? He first left Norway. Um, why, 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 why didn't they get him? You know, when he went to Dortmund, and said, "Why didn't they get him?" So sort of last summer. Maybe. I mean, surely the, the contacts that Solskjaer has. I mean, yeah, well, I don't Solskjaer understand had, it. Yeah, Solskjaer had conversations with Harlan with his agent. He was convinced that that Harlan was going to be a Manchester United player, uh, and then United um, didn't like the way the deal was structured um, in terms of their dealings with Mina Raiola. We all know the history with United mm. and Raiola who obviously represent Paul Pogba. Um, there, there, there was a, uh, a question mark over, um, I think, the, the sell-on clause or something to do, to do with the structure of the deal, which United weren't happy about. Uh, and of course, you know, Dortmund were happy with that uh, and, and he went there and he's thriving there now. So I think, yes, certainly it was one that got away for Manchester United. Whether they will be able to re- revisit it um, and, and, and get Haaland in the future remains to be seen. He has a release clause, I think, in his, in his current contract. <laughs> Which I think is around the eighty million or something mark, but I mean that's obviously going to be, you know, um, you know, uh, his value is obviously strong, you know, yes. way, way beyond that given his performances for, for Dortmund. I think he's got eighteen Champions League goals in thirteen games now, which is astonishing. I mean, he is alongside Mbappe, um, you know, the the kind of new boy wonder. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there will be a host of clubs, you know, trying to get him in the in, in the summer. Uh, and you know Dortmund are, are a, a selling club. You know that's their business model, isn't it? They they do produce players. Obviously, they haven't produced Harlem, of course, they've bought them in, but they will probably have to sell them at some stage. Uh, and Manchester United, um, uh, as will Manchester City. I mean, they're both in the market for a, for a number nine for a centre forward um, this summer. They will be in for him, be in for him, in for him. Um, uh, as, as we mentioned, Barcelona don't have the finances to, to potentially um, you know, get a player like Harlem. So. It's yeah. going to be to yeah. see whether he stays for another season at Dortmund or whether he decides to take the plunge. But I certainly feel, in answer to your initial question, yeah, United missed a trip there. I, I think I, it, it was concern over the, the way the deal was done, and that's why it, it fell through. But I think Solskjaer was certainly yeah. agreed um, that that he didn't get him because, as I said, I think he felt he had him, uh, having had detailed discussions with him. Yeah, listen, I think that, you know, nearly every big transfer, every big player, you know, there's always, always plenty of people, plenty of managers, plenty of clubs with a tail to say, oh, we could have had him there, we could have had him then, we could have had him for this. I think, you know, it goes, there's almost no exception. People said they could have done it. But I do think that in the case of Haaland, 
you know, we all speak to people who, who you know, clearly he's been on United's radar since he was a very young, young player. So I just think, and as I say, just considering the links they have, you know, I think they will probably regret that, particularly if, Simon, what happens now if, as, as you know, they are forever being linked with a move for Jaden Sancho, now, will you burn eighty million, ninety million pounds on Jaden Sancho and not go for Haaland? I mean, I mean, what, what it puts you in a bit of a dilemma, doesn't doesn't it? I mean, to me, you know, I think to myself, well, actually, it just doesn't just from the very look of it, does it look the best thing to do to be spending a fortune on Sancho and leaving Haaland to someone else? Well, I, I think that's a decision United will. Yeah. They clearly need um, a, um, a centre forward. Barney's um, been. Uh, has shown what a great player he is in in the time that he's been given on the pitch, but he's not he's not the long term solution for United as a centre as a centre forward. They also need um, a right sided um, attacker, so it's a case of you know where you spend the money best. Did they buy another centre half to to partner Harry Maguire? United have got a, a few little gaps that that need filling, yeah. and that's that's not going to be that's not going to come cheap. Whoever, whoever they go for, I think the problem with um, with somebody uh, like Haaland is that if you sign a Mino Rayola player, you've got to accept that your yeah. club is a stepping stone, and it doesn't yeah. matter whether you're Borussia Dortmund, Real Madrid, Juventus, Manchester United. <laughs> After three years, he will be looking to move that player on to another club. That's that's the way he works. That's the, that's the way he's always worked. Yeah, yeah. We've seen it with Paul Pogba. So do you do you look at somebody like Harlan and say, yeah, we'll we'll take him for three years, and 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 and, and kind of run that risk that, that after three years his agent is going to move him on, or do you go for somebody like Jaden Sancho, who's made it clear that after sort of educating himself in in the Bundesliga, he sees as his his next step as as a return back to yeah. the Premier League. I think, I think in that equation, in that equation, you've got to put Ahmad Diallo. I think because if, if as United suspect, Ahmad is going to uh, really emerge as an absolutely outstanding world world class talent, uh, and that is the hope at United already, having just seen him briefly, that that, that that's the view down there. I think that the need for Jaden Sancho definitely uh, diminishes, and, and as Simon says, then you know you're looking at Harlem because you know there's still question marks about Martial. Um, uh, there's still question marks about whether Marcus Rashford is a proper number nine or best coming off the left. Um, so Haaland would solve all those issues in one fell swoop. So yeah. um, uh, I think Jaden Sanjo probably is becoming uh, less of a, down, yeah. a yeah less of a likelihood for United. But hey, we, we may all be wrong. And of course, they've got Greenwood who can play across the front line as well. So he can mm. obviously be yes. on the right. He can play through the middle. I think, as, as the, the guy said, I think a uh, a centre forward is a, is a yeah. is really the most urgent sign for United alongside a centre back uh, to yeah. partner Harry Maguire. So I think, as you say, centre would probably be less less important. Um, yeah, signing. yeah. I, I, I guess you know Cavani is a very high class one, but is 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 only a, a short term measure. Simon mentioned that um, you're then dealing with Raiola. One guy, I think, who who was loath to deal with Raiola, um, or would be, um, Sir Alex. Now, I just I have noticed over the last couple of days, um, and I wasn't going to go there, but it just crossed my mind when Simon mentioned Raiola, um, thinking how how Fergie and him might or did get on or 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 might get on. And I have noticed over the last 24 hours that a lot of publicity for a forthcoming um, documentary about Sir Alex Ferguson. And in it, the clips that we've probably seen online featured his, you know, rather um, tasty exchanges with um, some journos. Now, obviously, you three guys have all dealt with him very closely, and it's never, you can never have enough of Fergie and Jano ranting anecdotes. So away you go. I'll start with you, Dave. You, you, um, you must have seen that one. I think it's one with him with Matt Lawton, isn't it? When he writes about gigs being out for the season. And Matt would have been on, I don't know, Daily Express then or Daily Mail, I'm not sure. But and he lays into him. But yeah, away you go. You, you, you do yours. Well, I mean, I mean, shortly after that, I think that would have been about 99, 2000. I started covering United in 2001, yeah. years after that. And, and, I'm out, I'm the, next four, the next four or five years, okay. Um, we had a separate briefing with with Fergie in, in the little room, and the guys will know this away from the cameras for the written press, and that's when all the juiciest, uh, you know, <laughs> tirades and all the all the, all the, the hair dryer really, you know, uh, came out yeah. because the cameras 
there. So he could really express himself. And then, of course, when he when he brought in the cameras in about 2005, 2006, all that kind of went. You know, so it was only off camera. So I mean, that, that that was a real insight, that that clip into, into just how, how fierce he could be. But the one I remember, I've just posted this on Twitter this morning in response to that, was um, before the first leg of the last 16 uh, Champions League title, Real Madrid, um, at the... Uh, at the Bernabeu, and it was Jose Marino in charge, and it turned out to be Fergie's last season in charge, um, 2013. And of course, in that press room at the Bernabeu, you're, you're packed in; it's right in the bowels of the stadium, and it was standing room only. And you know, there were cameras, lights, everything, hundreds of people in there. And I asked a question, and I was way off, way off to the right. You couldn't see me, Fergie. And I asked a question. You know, Marino's got a better head-to-head record than you know one of the rare few managers who's got a better head-to-head record with yeah. you. You know what? What makes his team so hard to play against? And, F- and Fergie said, who, who, "Who was that?" And, and Karen Cobble, the press officer, said, "Oh, it's uh, Dave McDonald." He couldn't see me. He said, "Ah, he said I should recognise. Uh, I should recognise that voice. It's like poison creeping over my body." <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Because everyone, everyone's in fits of laughter. So he was capable of kind of moments of levity. You know what I mean? And humour as well as that fearsome side. But I mean, yeah, I did. I did like Stephen Simon. Well, yeah, no doubt. I'll tell you now, yeah, we were, we've all been on the on on the receiving end, the sharp end of his of his tirade, and you know, um, they certainly were some sight to behold. Definitely. Was, was anyone there for the one Sebastian Veron? Uh, yeah, all idiots. I was, I was in for that one. Yeah, that was the day before Arsenal won the title at Old Trafford in two thousand and two. And we'd question, you know, his, uh, again, again this, this was in that written section away from the cameras, so this wasn't caught on film. But you know, at the end of that season, where they paid, I think, twenty-eight million, paid Lazio twenty-eight million for Veron. Yeah. And he, apart from that one great game against Everton, I think the four-one yeah. Old Trafford, August September, he hadn't really justified his, his um, you know, his, his price there. And so we started getting to Fergie about Veron, and he, he just, you know, you could see the kind of the face turning red, and uh, you know, he ended with the immortal line, uh, "Veron's a great player, user." And with that, flounced off. Flounced off. And then Arsenal won the title uh, at Old Trafford. I think the 1-1 nil. I think Wiltshire scored the goal and that was it. Um, but yeah, that, that, that was a famous one. I mean, there have been plenty of others, um, you know, off camera. Uh, most, well, most of them off camera uh, down the years. Um, Steve? Certainly uh, something to behold. Steve, you were in at the ground floor, pal. I would have thought. In from the very oh, day yeah. one. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. First uh, ever Fergie Mulligan, and and that was that was in the early days. You know, people um, I, I don't think appreciate how intensely driven and fiery and confrontational and aggressive he was. If anybody uh, stood in his way uh, or mentioned anything about his team, even in the early days when the team was clearly not the team he wanted to end up with, uh, he was just fierce, fierce. I've I've been thrown out uh, the training ground. I've been uh, banned for days, weeks, months by him. Uh, so I've, I've run the whole gamut as a lot of us have, but but the, the best, the best, without a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt, the best kind of Fergie meltdown I've ever ever seen was at the cliff before they moved to the Carrington training ground. So I'm going back many years. Uh, it was probably two, three, four years after it, uh, around about the nineties, nineteen nineties, I would say, before they left Carrington. And um, you'll all remember David Meek, who was on the Manchester Evening News for many years, covered United since they um, uh, since the Munich air disaster. And, and David obviously used to do uh, all the program notes for all the managers, you know, from Sir Matt Busby onwards, and did Fergus program notes. So he and Alex Ferguson had a, quite a good relationship, and uh, because he was an evening paper guy in those days, he was down at the cliff. Every day, and I remember being at the cliff one one Friday morning, and uh, I could hear this almighty row going on upstairs. And uh, uh, I I saw David Meek emerge, come down the stairs, and with Fergie still bellowing at him from the stairs, telling him he was banned. You know, he'd written uh, some rubbish story, whatever. Don't ring him again, blah blah blah. And then. 
David came down the stairs and kind of walked out into the car park. And I was stood downstairs in the reception area, the cliff. Because uh, I think in those days I was doing some work for the for the programme. So I was doing sort of interviews so I could get behind the scenes a little bit. Fergie put a stop to that, by the way, pretty, pretty soon. Uh, but the door slammed with an almighty slam and there was kind of a silence and people were kind of raising their eyebrows that Fergie had gone off on one again. David Meek was walking out into the car park back to his car. Uh, all of a sudden the door bursts open, Fergie comes running down the stairs shouting, David, and this was uh, this was in sort of mid 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 late December at the time, just before Christmas. And he comes running down the stairs out into the car park. He goes, David, David. So David Meek, who's been on the end of this ferocious rollicking of Fergie, turns round and Fergie goes, Happy Christmas. And then <laughs> then walks back in the building, back upstairs to his office. So, you know, Brilliant. just just uh, there was there was a lot of lot of humor and kind of funniness around some of those rollickings. Yeah. Weren't funny if you were on the end of them, but th- th- there was a humorous element to some of them. Simon, any 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 paths crosswords, Sir Alex? Yeah, quite a few, including one that got me a, a, a two and a half year ban from the training ground. Two and a half years, yeah, really? yeah. He, he, um, he was quite. Mind you, I think I'm still banned. <laughs> uh, but but uh, uh, my best Fergie story is actually um, a kind of um, example of how kind of um, helpful he could be to young to young journalists. And it was um, I was working for the press association at the time. And Steve mentions David Meek there. David had done a book on Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, I think it's called Matt. Was it called Managing My Year or Managing My Life? It was Life. the first book that that uh, Sir Alex had done. And um, I was given a one-on-one interview with him um, at Old Trafford. Uh, we went into a, um, one of the executive boxes, and um, part of the book was how he, he banned another local journalist called Paul Ince from uh, covering the club because Paul had claimed that Alex was about to retire. So um, it, this was in the book. So I actually said to Alex, look, you know, you, you mentioned that, that retirement's not in your um, mind at the moment. What kind of what kind of time are you looking at? And he gave me this kind of 10-minute um, uh, sort of talking about um, that he was going to retire at the age of 65 in 2002. Um, it was the one where he eventually had a U-turn. But he knew what he was doing giving me that story. Uh, I worked for the Press Association at the time, and the the story went on the wires. It was on the back page of every national newspaper the next morning. And sure enough, a couple of days later, I got a a, a telephone call off uh, the sports editor editor of a national newspaper offering me a, a, a job. And he knew what he was doing giving me that information um and giving me that that it was gold dust and um sure enough when 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 I covered my first press Manchester United press conference as a national newspaper journalist he kind of you know gave me a little bit of a, a knowing smile because he knew what kind of role he played in kind of opening the door for me and you know he he, he could be ferocious like Steve says but but there were there were times when um, he, he kind of you know he he, he didn't mind opening a, a door or two for for people and I, and I thought that was great. It is, pal. The soft side of Fergie to finish with, I think, guys. I was going to go on to the uh, the, the referee, but I, I think those anecdotes of um, of Sir Alex and, and it should make fascinating viewing the documentary. I'm going to say, Sam, so he sent you on the road to Stardom, but also banned you for two and a half years. Uh-huh. That probably just about sums him up, doesn't it? Really, the same way as that story about him, him having to go at Mickey and then him and then Happy Christmas, Dave. Um, yeah. Just about sums up, guys. I'm going to leave it there because I think they're perfect stories to end it on. I said we'll all look forward to seeing that documentary. Thanks very much for for today, uh, for your contributions, and thanks very much to anyone who's watching or listening. And we'll see you and speak to you next week. Thanks. Yeah.